So I, I don't know how long it's been going on now, but I, I've been watching the construction of the the new overpass and interchange at the intersection of 304 and 301 near Centerville. Uh, it's not that I go out of my way to see it, you understand. I really can't help it. I pass it multiple times each week as I make my way here. And the most recent phase of that construction is, I think, um, pretty remarkable. There are these long steel beams. Um, it's really hard to say just how long they are. I don't have any perspective on it. Uh, but they certainly must be taller than the steeple of this church. And I don't really know how many they've uh, used in this project. I, I'm not taking detailed notes after all. I'm just driving past, but they're on both sides of the main highway, and I want to believe that there's enough of them. And what they're doing with them is driving them into the ground all the way through the, the rise, that is the approach that they've constructed, and into the earth which sits underneath that approach. And they drive them in until they're almost completely buried. And they drive each one separately using a kind of a scaffolding and a crane which lifts and then drops an enormous weight over and over and over again so that that steel beam inches its way into place. And as I've driven by the last couple of weeks, I could hear the sound of those beams being driven into the earth, the pounding of that weight on them again over and over again. I really couldn't see the beams move. Maybe if I had been standing there, I would have seen it inching down, but when I next drove by, the progress was obvious. Now, now that part of the project is complete, and those beams are set, and of course they need to be there so the overpass doesn't come apart when people travel over it. Well, the text that we're going to look at today impresses me in a similar way as those beams being driven into the ground. Paul is almost relentless as he drives home his point. Uh, really a series of thoughts, all related, all of the same kind, as he makes his argument, hitting it over and over and over again. And Paul, too, is, a, is kind of a builder, building into our lives. And he wants to make sure that we get what he is saying here. It's an important part of the whole. And in some ways, it's foundational to the Christian life. It, it may not be what someone thinks of when they look at us, and it may not be what we would point to, but if others are to see something good in us, then this must be a part of who we are. That's one of the impressions our text makes upon us, at least it made upon me as we read it, that sense of Paul driving home his point. The other impression, which comes from our text, at least it strikes me this way, and it comes more closely to the end of the passage we're considering, is that we are in a war. A war where there can be no truce and no quarter. No prisoners taken, where we must be merciless to our enemy. And the enemy is really close at hand. It's the sin within each one of us. 
So I'm going to ask you to join me this morning to see what Paul has to say to us in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, where we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. An awful lot of material here. Maybe I should have tried to break it up more, but see if we can stay together and, and have some understanding of what Paul is saying. In this previous chapter, uh, chapter 5, and we saw this the last time we looked at Romans, Paul made one of those statements that I think thrills the heart of the believer, and it, and it draws the unbeliever toward the truth. He said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Or as the King James put it, where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound. Sin, we know all too well, don't we? But grace might need a little bit of explanation. And what it means is that God shows his unmerited favor to people. So sin is everywhere. But God's goodness to us outshines that darkness exponentially. And yet sin is so pernicious that it would twist that beautiful truth into an ugly and ungodly parody. Paul addresses that distortion, and then he begins laying out his thoughts, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, and we read this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You see, that's how sin, which is in each one of us, would twist God's truth to its own ends. And we're tempted to think that we can keep right on sinning. It doesn't matter the way we live because God has plenty of grace to go around. And there have been down through the years and even in our own day, people who have taught just that. And as Paul says elsewhere, such people's condemnation is just. Verse 2 Paul gives his response to that awful thought, and it really is almost a shout. He says, by no means. Uh, We might say, no way. This just ought not to be. And then Paul tells us something. He he tells us something that we really need to know. And, And what he says here reveals a truth. Uh, a fact of our existence as Christians. It's a spiritual reality which we could never discover on our own, but which God wants us to know, and so he reveals it to us in his word. Verse 2 again, we read, We are those who have died to sin. You know, Paul is going to talk more about that in a moment. But, but what we need to know, whether we understand it or not, is that when we put our faith in Christ, we died to sin. Now, I have to tell you, I, I know that may not seem like it in your life. It doesn't seem like it in my life often. Sin is so prevalent, and it's such a struggle but, but it is true nonetheless. We died to sin. And that fact ought to make a difference in our life. And Paul, I think, will try to apply that as we go on in the text. 
And right now what he does is say something like, if that's true, then he, he asks this question, how can we live in it? That is sin any longer. How can we, who have died to sin, live in it any longer? I mean, Paul's reasoning here. He's just saying, look, if you're, if you're dead to sin, shouldn't that affect your life? How can you continue to live in it? And really, from this point forward in today's text, Paul tells us several things which are true about us if we belong to Christ, and and he will um, tell us what we need to do about those truths. And in this section of chapter 6, the focus is on the reality of sin, though Paul can't talk just about that, even as we, uh, I mean, we who really know Christ would find it difficult to talk just about sin without talking about our Savior and what he's done for us. So he mentions that other, um, well, what we might call the positive side of our existence as Christians while we're still in this body. But that's really the focus of the next section, of 6, and we're going to kind of follow Paul's order, and we're going to look at that more closely the next time we are together next week if the Lord's willing. For now, what Paul is doing is he continues this revelation about our sin and what it means for us to be in Christ. And so verses 3 and 4, he says, or don't you know, and Paul really thinks that we should know, that the people he's writing to should know, but in case they don't, he tells them that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. I know there's a lot going on there. So let me see if I can just kind of summarize it for you. Christ died and was raised again so that we can live a new life. And the reason that we can live this new life is because we're in Christ. And that means... We were with him when he died. There's an old song that good friends of mine used to sing, and and um, and uh, they would sing about um, why did Christ have to die? What caused it? And, and then they talk about how their sin put him on the cross. Or that old hymn that we sing at Easter time. You know, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Well, we really were in a sense there. We were with him. And, and that's the reason that we can use uh, live this new life, whether we understand that or not. Do, 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 do you get this? This is a spiritual reality. We who belong to Christ are in him, and we were immersed into his very death. Now, and please just don't think that this happened when you were baptized in water. That's not when this happened. Water baptism is, uh, and we say this here all the time. I mean, it's so common. Maybe you even get tired of hearing me say it when we talk about baptism. But it's an outward sign of an inward act. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. And it's when we first put our faith in Christ, we were baptized into his death. Water baptism is just simply a symbol of what has already happened. And then verse 5, Paul reinforces what he's just said, for if we've been united with him in his death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection like his. Then in verses 6 and 7, 
he adds some new information. And he expands upon the spiritual truth that we're talking about. I want you to listen carefully as I read this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone has, who has died has been set free from sin. I, I don't know how you respond when you hear that. I know how many times I have read that as I make my way through the Bible my way through the New Testament several times every year. And I know how easy it is to read over that, but when you stop and when you slow up and when you hear what he's saying, you begin to, to get this picture forming in your mind that we have been, well, put into. We were a participant. We were co-crucified with Christ. And, 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 and from that fact, there are several things that we have to be aware of. Our old self, and that's that person that we were and in some ways still are, that person that is given to sin, who puts himself or herself above all other people, even above God, that person was crucified with Jesus. And, and our body ruled by sin will be done away with. Uh, uh, that's in the future. I understand that. But but the effects of it are felt, they're true even now in our life. And we're no longer slaves to sin. We have, since we've died to sin, in reality, we have been set free from sin. And again, I know it doesn't seem as though we have been. Do, do you feel like I feel so often? That, that I'm still in some ways a slave to sin. I, I, I wrestle with it. I fight against it. I feel tempted about it by it. And, and what's helped me to think about it, maybe it'll help you to think about it too, is, is to realize that when we've come to Christ, when we've put our faith in him, what we've done is we've chosen our way out of sin. Well, other people are simply choosing to remain in it. And so we're free in that sense, even though we still fail. See, the chains are off, and we are now on our way out. Again, this is a spiritual reality. This is who we are. This is what happened to us when we first put our faith in verse 8 is the positive result of what happens about what we've been talking about. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, not just in the future, but now, as we walk with him on this earth. I know we don't have time to go into this morning everything that we're seeing here, uh, but verses 9 and 10 are a kind of commentary on this life that we live in Christ for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. That doesn't mean just for all people. That means once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, so death no longer has any mastery over us. We, we've died to sin. 
we live to God because we're in Christ. All of that is true about us. We have died to sin, and we ought not to live in it any longer. We've been united with Christ in his death, and so we will be united in his resurrection. Our old self was crucified with Jesus, so our our old body will be done away with. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free from it. And however distant that might seem, whether we feel it or not, no matter how much we sense the burden of our sin, this is the truth about the believer. And, and so we've covered a lot of ground here, but what Paul does from really this kind of point forward is he he tells us how these truths um, ought to affect the way we live. We've hinted at it as we've gone through it. We've talked about living to God. We've talked about how that life comes out in us. But now Paul's becoming much more uh, explicit of what he's saying. And the first thing he says, well, it has to do with our attitude. It has to do with how we think. And so verse 11 says this, in the same way, that is, just as Jesus died but is now alive, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, we're to count, reckon, figure, think of ourselves as though we're dead when it comes to sin. We're not dead to God, but when it comes to sin, and that's how we ought to think about it. Now, I, I wouldn't know this really from my own personal experience. But, but I've read that when someone finds themselves on the field of battle in a desperate fight, the only way, way to be effective is to give up thinking about making it through. <laughs> in fact, to think as though you're as good as dead. And so that you might as well uh, make it count and sell your life as dearly as possible. Knowing that somehow good's going to come said, I don't know that personally, but I've read that in a number of different books and accounts, and, and I, it strikes me as true. It, 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 something like that is, is going on with our battle against sin. See, we're dead to sin, and so we can fight against it with an abandon. It, it's our enemy, and we need to kill it. My oldest son was a newborn. We hadn't been home from the hospital not two weeks. Ann and I were out and had him in the stroller walking around the neighborhood. And walked into an area we hadn't been in before and as we were walking along and pushing the stroller and he simply enjoying the time with them. These, uh, three or four dogs came up to us, started our direction. They were growling. And without ever even giving it a thought, as though I were kind of on autopilot, I stepped around that baby carriage and stood between those dogs and my camera. You, you know, if, if dogs can sense fear, and I've been told that they can, they sense nothing like that in me. That There was a kind of freedom uh, 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 just this willingness to whatever would happen but they were not going 
get to my baby and my wife. When we face an enemy that is like that, that, that will destroy not only us, but everything that we hold dear and we love. It's not a joke. And the sad thing is we become too accustomed to it. And Paul's trying to get our attention and say, this is real. And you're dead to sin. You have no right to live in it any longer. And he goes on in verses 12 and 13 to tell us what the battle looks like. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. You see, sin wants to rule you, and you have to fight against it. It wants you to obey its evil desires, and so you have to kill it. This is a war, and we offer no truce and no quarter. For our enemy never ceases its fight, and it intends to kill us and everything that we love. And he goes on to say, Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. You know, this is a, a kind of emphasis of what's above. Not only should we not let sin reign, we aren't even supposed to offer a part of ourselves to sin not as an instrument of wickedness. It's how the text puts it. And, and when I hear that, that, that emphasizes to me, the sin doesn't affect me. It affects the people around me. In, in this battle, so we give ourselves wholly to God. Every part of us as a tool to do good. And then verse 14 brings us back to where we started from. He says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are no longer under the law, but under grace. You know, even though sin's still present, even though we continue to sin, even though we continue to struggle against it, we need to have this kind of an attitude. The kind that Paul and the early church had. We, we can't be, shouldn't be, need to stop being comfortable. We can't accept it. We ought not to be complacent about it. Sin killed our Savior. Sin kills today. Sin condemns people for eternity. Sin darkens the conscience. Sin is vociferous. It multiplies and grows. It wreaks havoc in our world in every area of existence between human and human and human and his and her environment. Sin must be killed or it will kill. Sin must be somebody tell me that 
I don't know exactly how I feel. I know how I feel when I studied it. <laughs> I know how I feel when I began reading it and really grasping what was Paul was saying. And the way I felt was, I need to change the way I think. I can't, I can't live the way the world does. Something different about me because Christ is in my life. That difference needs to shine. I don't ever want to go down the path of legalism. I've been there. I've done that. The letter of the law kills. It's a spirit that gives us freedom. But it is not freedom to sin. It is a freedom to live for God. So if you don't feel uplifted, that's okay. <laughs> if you take it to heart, and if you say, Lord, the table that we're going to come to in just a moment it really is uh, well it reminds us of sin doesn't it I mean it's a reminder that our savior had to die to pay for our sins let, let me say that it's a reminder to me that my savior had to die to pay for my sin one of you can say the same thing. And yet, even though we're reminded of that, get it. He took my sins away. I don't bear them anymore. I'm a new creature in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. And I have a hope waiting for me in heaven. I have a home there. I have a God there. And all of those that I love who have gone on before me and all of those that I love that I pray for that come to Christ, all of us one day will gather around a table bigger than this one with a better host and a time when we will never say goodbye again. And we will have true fellowship with our Lord. That's a good thing. Because we have a great God. I'm going to ask the, uh, by the way, we have three Jameses serving us this